You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So with that, let's turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. There's some men back there who have Bibles in their hands. If you don't have a Bible, really, you want to follow along with the text. So just raise up your hand or make some kind of eye contact with those fellas. And they'll hand a Bible to you because it is important. It's important for you to see that uh, the words that I bring to you and what I'm talking about really does come from this book. Ephesians chapter 2. I want to read to you starting now at verse 10. And we're going to read four verses up through verse 13. So here we go. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 10. And then I'll just begin to speak to you about kind of the theme, the topic that we're going to focus on here this morning. Here we go. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This morning... What I want to speak to you about is your identity in Jesus Christ. And and, and what I mean by that is I'm really not that good at titling sermons. Uh, Some people I know, man, they got the gift. They can just get that catchy title for the sermon. I'm always at a loss for it. I just give it a pretty straightforward, almost boring titles. But the title I'd give to this message is Three Keys to Your Identity. And if I could say that, I'm just going to tell you what the three keys are right off. I'm also not very good at building like a suspense through the sermon. So I'll just lay my cards on the table. Here's the three keys to your identity, and then I'll spend the rest of my time with you explaining them. Here's the first one. Number one, God is your creator, and you are made in his image. That's the first key. Second key is we are all fallen sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. And then number three In Jesus, we can be redeemed and reborn, finding our identity in him. Now, I think that these three keys to identity are very helpful and important about the Christian life. Although, as I just listed those three things off, God's our creator, we're made in his image, we're fallen because of Adam and Eve, and in Jesus, we can find redemption and rebirth. I, I hope that most of you are saying, well, Pastor David, I heard that a time or two before. You know, that, that just kind of seems to be the basic message of the gospel. And it's right. But I want to apply that basic message to the gospel to something that I believe is very important for us to understand in our culture today. And that's the whole issue of identity. Now, I need to say first off that there's absolutely no doubt that the most important question that you can answer in life is, who is God? 
That's the most important question. If you ever had a choice between knowing who you are and knowing who God is, go after knowing who God is. Make that the priority. But I do want to say that the Christian message, this book that we have, this book that we base our faith upon, what it reveals to us about God and Jesus Christ, this book not only tells us who God is, and I want to emphasize again, that is its most important message. It also speaks to us about who we are, both apart from God and who we are in Jesus Christ. You see, who am I? It's not the most important question, but it is nevertheless an important question. When Moses encountered God on Mount Sinai and God commissioned him to be Israel's deliverer, Moses asked God, who am I? When God promised King David that he would be the head of the royal house of the Messiah, David asked, who am I? When God gave Solomon this great privilege of building the temple and dedicating it, at the dedication prayer, Solomon asked, who am I? And I would say, not only has that question been asked by biblical characters, that in some way, sometimes vocally, sometimes without articulating it, that's a question that every person wants to know. Who am I? What am I all about? What is the most important thing about me? And who are the people that I belong to? So let me ask that question to you. Who are you? What's the most important thing about you? Uh, are you the name that's on your driver's license? Is that really the most important thing about you? Um, are you the nation that you were born in? Maybe the nation where you live right now, is that the most important thing about you? Is the color of your skin the most important thing about you? How about your age, the generation you identify with? How about your sexuality? Is that the most important thing about you? How about the work that you do, your profession, your career? Does that really define who you are? Is that the most important thing about you? Now, what I want you to know is that in the big picture, our culture is asking this question. It's crying out. It's almost screaming, tell me who I am. When you see all around us, these issues that come forth again, again in our culture, th these issues of gender identification, these issues of sexual identity, sexual preference. You see these issues about uh, people identifying with this group or with that group. You see that people ache like no other today to want to know who they are and who the people are that they belong with. Now, I believe that this is a universal question for humanity. But for some reason, and I don't know if I understand all the reasons, but for some reason, this question is more important to our culture today than it has been for generations. I remember that when I was growing up, I was a teenager in the mid-1970s. When I was growing up, the culture had other big questions. Now, again, I want to make it clear. This question, who am I, it's always been out there. It's never disappeared, but it's, sometimes it's been more urgent. But when I was growing up, 
again, in the 70s and even in the early 80s, there was another more urgent question that was in the air. Now, you people who are my age or older, you're going to understand this, what I'm saying. You people who are younger, you who are in your 20s and your 30s, you'll understand the words I'm saying, but they won't connect with you the same way. Do you remember in the 70s and 80s how the question hung in the air in the culture? Is the world going to survive? Is this world going to end in some cataclysm? See, in the 70s and even in the early 80s, the idea was, and I'm not saying it began then, it was even beginning earlier, but it was very much in the air that there are two leaders, one in the Soviet Union, one in the United States, and each of them have their finger on or right near a big red button, and all they have to do is push that button, and the world is annihilated. And the world lived with this kind of tension. People were doing uh, uh, nuclear air raid drills. People were making bomb shelters. People lived with this cloud hanging over them that the world could end at any time through nuclear apocalypse, through uh, uh, overpopulation in the world, through ecological disaster. The idea hung very heavy in the world. What's going to become of this world? Where is this all going? And is the world going to end? And you know what I think is exciting about that? Was that in the 70s and even in the early 80s, the church had something to say to the culture about that. The culture, excuse me, the church could open the Bible and point to uh, what God has to say about the future, point to biblical prophecy and say, you know what? Let us tell you what the Bible says about what the future is going to be in the world. And there was something about that message from the scripture speaking to where the culture was at that resonated so, so true to the culture that in a way that we can't really comprehend right now, thousands upon thousands of people were led to faith in Jesus Christ through teaching biblical prophecy. Now, I'm here to tell you today, what the Bible says about biblical prophecy is not any less true. It's just as true today. And if anything, we're closer to the return of Jesus Christ than we were ever before. We understand that. But we do have to say this. That in many ways, the culture has different questions on its mind than it did in the 70s and in the 80s. Now, in many ways, the culture is crying out and it's asking, who am I? Tell me who I am. You see, so much of what revolves around the questions of the present culture is directed at those issues. Political and social issues come back to that. Uh, Sexual and gender issues come back to that. Consumer choices and brand identification come back to identity. National, ethnic, tribal identity. It all comes back to this idea of identity. Now, i got good news for you. The Bible speaks to the question of who we are. The Bible gives us the keys to understanding our identity. And I'm going to be right up front with you. These are answers that the world may not like to hear. That's okay. The Bible has answers that sometimes people don't want to hear, but it's still the answer. But it's our job, first of all, to understand the answer. Secondly, it's our job to receive the answer in our own life. And then thirdly, it's our job to make that answer known to the world for anybody who does want to receive it. And I see these answers 
unfolded for us in this passage, Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 10. Now, I need to be honest with you here. Number one, there are so many passages I could have picked that reflect the same idea. Because these are big themes throughout the scriptures. But for whatever reason, I feel like the Lord led me to this passage, Ephesians chapter 2. Look now at verse 10. Let's take a look at this first principle. God is your creator. You're made in the image of God. Look at verse 10 of Ephesians 2. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, full disclosure here. I'm quoting this verse somewhat out of context. Because when Paul writes in verse 10, we are his workmanship, actually, he has his view towards believers and the beautiful work that God is doing in the life of believers. But in principle, isn't it also true that we find that God is the creator of every human being? And we know this. That God has created every human being in his image. Brothers and sisters, this is an important thing for us to understand. Every human being is created in the image of God. Like God, every human being has personality. Like God, every human being has some sense or understanding of morality. Even if they don't keep it, they have the understanding of it. Like God, every human being possesses spirituality. And I could go on and on in ways that human beings reflect the image of God. There is something valuable. There is something precious in every human life because we are made in the image of God. We have a creator. We didn't happen just by accident. And we are made in the image of God. Now, I'm not much for conspiracy theories, but I do believe that there has been a diabolical, satanic conspiracy over our culture over the last couple hundred years. And this satanic conspiracy has been very clever and very effective in making men and women in the modern world really believe that we have no creator. If you believe that you have no creator, that you're just here as a result of a random set of occurrences that has happened over millions and millions of years, that there is no God in heaven who created. If you believe that you have no creator, then you have no sense of responsibility or obligation towards that creator. No, not only do we have a creator, but we are made in his image. This is a very important starting point for us to understand how God has made every human being and our identity we are created and created in the image of God. That's number one. Now let's take a look at number two. Uh, for that, I want you to read verse 12 of Ephesians chapter 2. We read this. That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Oh, it's true. That in some general sense, the entire span of humanity is God's creation, his workmanship. But it's also true that we're all fallen. Every one of us is a son of Adam or a daughter of Eve. We've had something bad passed down to us through the entire human race. Friends, you want evidence of it? 
You don't even have to open your Bible. You could open your Bible for evidence of it. Just uh, listen to the news. Go through your social media feed. Look what's going on in the world. Isn't that evidence enough of the fallenness of the human condition? We are fallen. We're broken. And look at how Paul describes it. Now again, I'm once again stretching the context just a bit. Because in this passage, Paul primarily has in mind the Gentiles, those people who are not Jewish. There's a special reason why the apostle focused on the Gentiles here in these verses. But, but the principle applies to all of humanity. All of humanity is fallen. All of humanity is broken. Because of the fall, what we inherit as sons of Adam and daughters of Eve is that these things are true of us. Look at what he lists there in verse 12. First of all, we are aliens from the community of God's people. By the way, I need to make that very clear. Every human being is precious and created in the image of God. Every human being has God for a creator, but not every human being is part of God's family. There is such a thing as, look at verse 12, being an alien from God's family, being put out. And that's us apart from Jesus Christ. We're aliens from the community of God's people. We're strangers from the covenants that promise salvation. And then look at the last two phrases in verse 12. Having no hope and without God in the world. Brothers and sisters, that's where the world is without God. And that's what we see so vividly expressed in our common culture today. There is no hope. And as our culture begins to divide more and more and make those barriers higher and higher between different groups, different classes, different genders, different uh, races, as those barriers go up and as people become more segmented, there seems to be less and less hope for the culture and society. But Jesus Christ has a different message. He says, this is what you were apart from Christ. So again, so number one, you're created, made in the image of God. Number two, you're fallen, sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. Now number three, look at verse 13 for this. Verse 13 says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I tell you what, those words, but now, are beautiful words of contrast. Man, before you were without hope, you were without Christ, you were without God in this world, there was no hope, but now changes everything. We once were far off, but now we are brought near, and now we can find our identity in Jesus Christ. Now, I would not blame a single one among you for asking the question, Pastor David, whatever do you mean by saying we can find our identity in Jesus Christ? What does that even mean? You know, sometimes we preachers, we just throw out words and phrases and we don't pause to think, well, okay, come on, feet on the ground, street level Christianity, just, just road level stuff. What does that even mean? Well, I'll tell you what it means. When we choose to make Jesus our identity, it is our way of saying, Jesus in my life is the most important thing about me. Now, it's not the only thing about me. 
There's more to me than Jesus in my life. But unmistakably, if Jesus is my identity, he is the most important thing about my life. So I come from a certain class of people. But that's not the most important thing about me. Um, I live in a certain place. That's not the most important thing about me. By the way, in particular, where I live, that's a message that I have to kind of present to people somewhat frequently. I, I live in a pretty nice place to live. I never lived before in a place where people like to come and vacation. And people like to come to Santa Barbara, California and vacation. And Santa Barbara, I won't lie to you, it's a nice place to live. But here's the problem. A lot of the Santa Barbarians know that it's a nice place to live. And they take a lot of pride in the fact that they live in such a nice place. And oftentimes their thinking goes like this. You can almost see the wheels turning in their head. I live in a wonderful place. I must be a wonderful person. Can I tell you it just doesn't work like that? Now, does it say something about me that I live in Santa Barbara? Absolutely it does. It means I pay an astronomically high mortgage is what it says. But... <laughs> It says something about me that I live in Santa Barbara, but that is far and away, that is not the most important thing about me. I, I am of a certain race, an ethnic group. That's not the most important thing about me. I, I have a certain job. That's not the most important thing about me. I favor a certain political party. That's not the most important thing about me. I like a certain sports team. That's not the most important thing about me. Let me tell you, friends, Jesus in my life is the most important thing about me. And I believe that that's what it means to have Jesus as your identity. Now, when that is true among people, there is an immediate bond among them. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. Sometimes it happens when we travel to another place. Other times it happens when people from another place come to us. But I don't know if you've ever gotten together with believers who come from a different uh, geography, from a different language, sometimes from a different race, uh, from a different culture, from a different economic class, from a different educational level. You don't have anything in common with that person except Jesus is the most important thing in your life and Jesus is the most important thing in their life, and you find that you have an immediate bond of brotherly love in Jesus Christ. Have you ever experienced that? It's possible. Why? Because Jesus is our identity. And again, I want to make it clear, it's not like those other things have no place in our life, but far and away they are not the most important thing in our life. You see, this all happens in our life and it happens, verse 13 says, notice this, as we are brought near by the blood of Christ. We're brought near, and how? Are you brought near because you decided to turn over a new leaf? Are you brought near because you made a lot of vows and resolutions? Are you brought near just because you started going to church? Or just because you started doing something for God? No, you're brought near because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. You see, once our fallen nature and our brokenness made us distant, but what God did in and through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross has brought us near. 
That's what he means there by the phrase, the blood of Christ in verse 13. Sometimes I think if people aren't familiar with the Bible, they, they might read a verse like that and say, what is that talking about? How can I go back through time and get some of the physical blood of Jesus and put it on me and the blood of Jesus would draw me near to God? How can that happen? Jesus died 2,000 years ago. There's no more of his blood to be put on anybody. How can that even happen? And then we realize, no, no, it's not talking about that. It's not talking about being literally splattered with the literal blood that flowed in Jesus' veins. That, that wouldn't save anybody. I'm absolutely convinced that some of the Roman soldiers that nailed Jesus to the cross in that horrific act of violence, I'm pretty sure that some of them were splattered by the blood of Jesus as they pierced his hands, his feet, as they pierced his side. But, you know, being splashed with the literal blood of Jesus wouldn't save you. But what Jesus literally did in his literal life and death on the cross, that death is what brings us salvation. It's what brings us near. And how does it do it? Well, it's simply like this. At the cross, Jesus identified with us. Now, I'm going to say this in terms of me, but I want to make it clear. I'm not talking about only me. I'm talking about all of you. I'm talking about any who will believe. But at the cross, Jesus identified. It's as if he looked at David Guzik and he said, David, you are guilty because of your sin. I will identify with your guilt. David, you are in a state of shame because of your sin. I'll identify with your shame. David, you are in a state of humiliation because of the wrong you've done. I'll identify with that. All the sin, all the guilt, all the shame, all the dishonor that was in my life, Jesus willingly identified with that. And he said, David, you can put all of that on me. I will identify with it. Now, that's only half the equation. The other half of the equation is that Jesus looks to me and he says, David, now you can identify with me. My right standing with God, Jesus would say to any one of us, my right standing with God becomes yours. My righteousness becomes yours. My clean slate before God becomes yours. His right standing, his forgiveness, his honor, all those things that belong to Jesus now belong to us because he identified with us and we identify with him and our identity is found at the cross. That's what it means to identify with Jesus. That's what it means to say that Jesus becomes the most important thing about me. Now, let me give you a very practical example, biblically, of how this works out in life. Uh, turn over to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to take a look at verses 24, 25, and 26. And I want you to see that in this amazing way, prophetically, before Jesus ever walked this earth and died on the cross, Moses had this process of identifying with Jesus Christ, choosing to identify with him. Hebrews chapter 11, starting at verse 24, tells us how. Let's take a look at this example. It says this. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, 
choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he looked to the reward. All right, keep those verses in mind, but remember the story of Moses. Moses was born to Hebrew, or we would say Jewish, parents. But he was born to them in the years of their slavery in Egypt. They had been slaves in Egypt uh, some 300 years when Moses was born. So they had been slaves in Egypt, and Moses was born to these slave parents who were Hebrew or Jewish in their ethnic identity. But at the time Moses was born, Pharaoh had a standing command. Because he was fearful of the increasing population of the Jewish slaves, Pharaoh commanded that every male newborn baby be killed. By the way, I can't say those words about a political leader commanding or allowing the death of infants without thinking of our own political situation in the United States at this time. It makes you realize that these things are nothing new and that God has already spoken to these things in his word in any regard. Pharaoh gave that command, but the parents of Moses refused. They said, we're not going to kill our boy. They kept him in the house as long as they could, but when he came to an age, I don't know if he just got too squirrely, they couldn't keep him quiet any longer. They took him out to the Nile River. They put him in a basket. They coated the basket with something like asphalt, and they sent it down the river where Pharaoh's daughter was, no doubt, having fun with her friends. Pharaoh's daughter received that basket, took that baby in her arms, and she raised Moses as if he was her own. Moses grew up in Egyptian culture, Egyptian language, Egyptian education, Egyptian customs, Egyptian thinking was all around him. But there was something powerful going on in Moses. Look at verse 24 again. It says simply, it says, by faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. There came a time in Moses' life when he simply said, look, I know Egyptian culture's all around me. I know I've received that education. I know how to speak their language. I'm even destined for the throne. That's according to the Jewish historian Josephus. That's not in the Bible, but the Jewish historian Josephus says that Moses was actually the crown prince of Egypt, that he was going to be the next pharaoh. Nevertheless, Moses said, I know all those things are true. I know Egyptian culture, language, education. I was raised in all, but I am not an Egyptian. I'm a Hebrew, and I'm going to identify with my people. Now, it cost him something to do that. Look, look at what it says there. It says there in these verses. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Verse 25, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. See, this is how it worked. Moses knew who he was. He said, I'm a Hebrew. 
I'm a Hebrew by birth and I'm a Hebrew by choice. By the way, if you're one of God's children, the same is true of you. You are a believer by new birth and you're a believer by choice. Both things are true of you that were true of Moses. Moses knew who he was. Secondly, Moses knew who he was not. I'm not an Egyptian. And just as much as it's important for us believers to know who we are, who we are in Jesus Christ, it's very important for us to know who we are not. And even though it's true that not all the cultures and the ideals of our world are bad, but many of the ideals and the, uh, the values of our world, of our culture, so many of them are desperately, desperately misguided. And that's not us. We know who we are. We know to whom we belong. And we know who we're not. That second point is the one I emphasize here. We know that we belong to a people. Moses knew that. And you need to know that. That you belong in God's family. Now, knowing all this is going to exact a price from us. Look at what it says there starting in verse 25. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Esteeming the reproach or the disgrace of Jesus Christ of greater riches. Moses made a calculation. Somehow God gave him the ability to see down the corridors of God's plan and he could see the Messiah. And he said, I would rather identify with the disgrace of the Messiah than I would with the glories of Egypt. And if you're going to say, the most important thing about me is Jesus in my life. If you're going to say that, there's going to be some people in this world who aren't going to like that. There's going to be some people in the world who will hate you for that. There'll be other people who will mock you for it. They'll try to disgrace you for it. But God helping you and God helping me, we will say, no, I will rather bear that disgrace of being identified with Jesus Christ than I would to have the applause of Egypt, I mean the world, all around us, just as Moses had to. And this is especially true when it comes to the people whom we belong to. You see, we know the people we belong to. We belong to God's family. And can I be honest with you about God's family? Sometimes there's some embarrassing people in God's family, is there not? And let me say, just like your natural family, don't you have some embarrassing relatives? Don't look around. Don't nod your head. Just play this one cool. But it's true. You've got some embarrassing relatives, do you not? But nevertheless, at the end of the day, you go, yeah, I know they're embarrassing. I wish they wouldn't do what they do. But they're family, and I still belong to this family. We do the same thing in the family of God. Yet there's some embarrassing people in the family of God. But nevertheless, at the end of it all, we go, we're still family. This is God's family, and I'm part of it. Now, let me look at one last aspect here before I conclude. As it was with Moses, so will it be for us a matter of faith to comprehend this. Look back at the beginning of verse 24 in Hebrews chapter 11. What does it say? It says, by faith, Moses. Moses apprehended all this by faith. How did he know who he was? By faith. How did he know who he was not? By faith. How did he know the people that he belonged to? By faith. 
And if we're going to walk this way, it is in Somerset going to be a walk of faith. Because I'm here to tell you, when you understand all that the Bible says you are in Jesus Christ, it is so big, it is so majestic, that the only way you can really receive it is by faith. Do you know who the Bible says you are in Jesus? The Bible says you're forgiven. The Bible says that you're made righteous with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The Bible says you are adopted as a son or a daughter of Jesus Christ. The Bible says you are filled with the Holy Spirit and sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that the old man is dead and you reckon it to be so. The Bible says that now you've been given a new nature, a nature patterned after Jesus Christ. The Bible says that you're called and gifted to serve Jesus and his people. And the Bible says that you have a role in God's unfolding plan of the ages. I'm here to tell you, all of that taken together, it's big. It's so big that I look at my life, and sometimes it doesn't seem to be true. But by faith, I say, Lord, if you say it, then I'm going to believe it. We sang the song this morning. That's a song that resonates with a lot of people, does it not? I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. And there's another line in that song. It says this, I am who you say I am. Brothers and sisters, who are you really? At the end of the day, are you who you imagine yourself to be? Are you who other people think you are? No, at the end of the day, you are who God says you are. And if you've come to Jesus and chosen to make your identity in him at the cross, all of this, surrendering your life, putting your faith in who Jesus is and what he did for you at the cross. God says, I'll tell you who you are, and you are who I say you are. That's what God says to us. Now, when we know this for ourselves, it's a message that we can bring to our broken world. We can tell the whole world, you don't have to live with the emptiness of not knowing who you are. That's so big. You see it in all the confusion in the culture. You see it in the feedback people long for on the social media platforms. It's as if with every tap of the keyboard, they're crying out, tell me who I am. You don't have to live with the emptiness of not knowing who you are. Because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, he invites you to identify with him. And could I say finally, there is no greater identity to have than Jesus Christ. If you could choose to identify with any person who has walked this earth, past, present, or future, if you had one person to identify yourself, would it not be Jesus Christ? Could there possibly be a greater identity to have than to say, no, I'm going to identify myself so much better with identifying yourself with, with a celebrity today, with a sports star, with this or that. No, if you're going to identify yourself, identify yourself with Jesus Christ. And you'll fulfill the last of those three keys to identity. God's your creator. You're made in his image. We're all fallen and broken in Adam and Eve. And finally, in Jesus, we can be redeemed and reborn, finding our identity in him.
Lord, I pray that every person here this morning, and I mean that literally, Lord, every person would be secure in the knowledge of those three things. And Lord, if it's a first time for somebody to come to that knowledge, then I pray that they would embrace it with all of their hearts and just receive it as you would mean us to receive it. Thank you, Jesus, that you love us so much and are so generous to us that you invite us to share your identity. We receive it gratefully, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor David Guzik. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor David's teaching ministry by visiting EnduringWord.com.